Welcome to episode four of Sound Learnings, a podcast about education in audio, music technology and music production, sponsored by Routledge. My name is Tim Kanfer, and I'm joined by Russ Hepworth-Sawyer and Cruella Boehm. I'm recording this intro in the middle of December, but the episode was recorded earlier on in the year, in July 2020. The episode is a chat with Mike Cave, producer, engineer and owner of the Liverpool studio The Loft. Mike has worked with all kinds of interesting artists. The ones that stood out for me include Elvis Costello, Titchy Strider, The Coral and The Charlatans. We discuss all kinds of issues facing independent pro-music production, from the importance of location in music production, which in the UK means how important is it to be based in London? We also talk about why he's keen to connect with education. And as I mentioned way back in episode one, he offers the best tip for success that I think I've heard yet. In fact, it is so good, I'm going to drop it in here. I think what you need to do is do great work and people will find out, people will come and hunt you down and that's exactly how labels like things to be. So please enjoy our chat with the ever-effusive and interesting Mike Cave. Are you okay telling us a bit about your career background? Yeah, yeah. I feel quite lucky that I was given the opportunity to come through like the traditional route of T-boy, T-pop. Mm. I still to this day make an amazing cup of tea. <laughs> that route into the industry is gone now, really. Absolutely. Mm. I just think that that experience of watching producers make records with artists and just analysing the dynamics of when things go well and when things don't go well... I mean, a lot of the time I was just sitting on the couch observing, really. That, to me, is, is an invaluable way of learning how to make records, and that's gone. So I think yeah. really now, I mean, this is why I've been in to see Russ quite a few times with the students, and I go to a lot of universities, because if we don't do that and we don't share our experiences, then where's the way in for those people? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I try and do as much of this sort of stuff as I can. But so, yeah, basically that was my way in and it was knackering. I'll be, I'll be honest with you, like the crazy hours. Yeah. I started a, a place called the Motor Museum, really. That was my first tape hop job. That was Liverpool based studio. It's now, it's now the Motor Museum. It was called the Pink Museum back then. There were some great records coming through there. And again, observing was amazing. But really where I wanted to be was Par Street Studios because that was the, it was the biggest studio outside London, really. And it, it was here in Liverpool. We were we were working with great artists coming through and a massive range of genres. So you'd never quite know what record you were going to be working on tomorrow. It could be an orchestra. It could be a rock band, pop band, anything. And so that was really interesting, just watching lots of different genres and different producers coming through. Yeah. And I was there for about seven or eight years, I think. And gradually, the longer I was there, I was getting asked to engineer sessions instead of make tea. Then gradually, the engineer would be sick or something, and then I'd get to do that job. And so you just gradually just, like, climbing up the ranks very slowly. <laughs> um, and then I got to a point where the same bands were coming through all the time, and they were asking for me. And then there was actually one band, the Charlatans. They were coming in, and they asked me to go to their studio to make a record. That, to me, then, was the turning point of, like, well, hang on, I can't really leave here and expect Par Street to mm. just put up with not having an assistant for two months or whatever. So, the route, mm. really, you've just got to take that leap of faith at some point, really, and go, you know what, I think I'm ready to go freelance. I'm going to give up my job here, and they will obviously replace me straight away, and then you're out in the big, wide world and <laughs> fighting, fighting for your life. 
And actually, that was probably the best decision I made. It wasn't an easy decision because I knew that that was the turning point, you know. So the Charlatans were great. What an amazing bunch of guys they are. I did a couple of records with them, actually. Their management also gave me a couple of other bands to work on. And it just went from there, really. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. I've just been really busy ever since. Mm -hmm. So what year was that? Give us an idea of when you left Past Street. 2002 or three. So in your experience, having been in this industry for 20-something years now... Yeah. We're getting old, Mike. We're getting old. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a young talent nowadays, is it as easy to make that jump? You say it was quite daunting, it was risky, and of course you're untying your sustainable income from one moment to the other. But is it harder now if you're in that position, or has that stayed the same? I think it's, it's different but equally as challenging. So you've got a different route in, as I said. So it's unusual mm. for there'll be very few people in-house at commercial studios that will be assisting. Obviously, there's some commercial studios still running, but there's a lot less. So another route in would be, like, for instance, my assistant now, Bob, he's from Lipper, and he's brilliant. He's going he's gonna to go far. That guy is amazing. But And at some point, I will lose him as an assistant, which is frustrating, but yeah. I'd like to he's yeah. going to stay with me for a while. So... That's quite a typical route in now would be from Lipper or York or any of these places to go and work with a producer, one producer in particular, in their studio and then learn from them and then eventually start taking on your own projects and stuff like that. So slightly different route in, but the same, because when Bob goes, I'm going to have to find someone else instantly. Mm. So, you know, it's just the way it goes. And to be fair, I mean, I think a lot of mixers and producers may have one or two or three assistants and they'll allow them to do other jobs because they know they've got someone else to work that day. So it's a little bit more, it's not as if you'd be strictly in-house with one producer. You may be able to go and do other jobs as well because we're aware that people need to make money and keep moving. So it's a slightly different way in, but it's still the same concerns about taking that leap of faith and leaving Mm. a stable place, you know. So it's not easy. I always say to the students that, particularly with so many students coming through. Now, it's only the cream of the crop that are going to do well in the industry. There's only so many opportunities, and you've just got to be better than the next guy. To be fair, I think that's probably what's kept me busy because I just want it so much, and I always have done. It's like I've always gone the extra mile to make things happen and, and to deliver quality records, and that's not easy because... And again, this is this is quite interesting when you talk to students about the sacrifices you have to make to do well in this industry. Mm-hmm. And you start talking about, like, you know, lack of social life, <laughs> lack of relationships and family life has to yeah. be compromised. And I'm lucky that my family have been really supportive, but it's been tricky as well at times when they've wanted my support for something and I've been stuck in the studio. So there's all these, like, dynamics that people I don't really think realise that you have to sacrifice before you can even think about doing well. Um, Absolutely. So it is only the people that actually want it enough that are, are going to do well. And I don't even think it's a case of like being talented, really. I really don't. Like, I mean, I don't think I've got particularly like talented ears that some people say, oh, like, you must have been gifted. And it's not, I do believe that you train your ear to deliver, you know, and that's something that anyone can do, really, I think, if you put enough effort in, you know. That's such a positive message. Thank you. I'd probably hasten to disagree with you, Mike. I think you have got some golden ears. It's only because of training them. In fact, you know what's interesting? I often go to get my ears checked out like once every couple of years and I went to a, a consultant last year and he explained to me about the cochlea in your ear and all the nerve endings and he said there's 32,000 nerve endings and each one of those 
responds to one frequency. And I didn't know any of this. Like so, And he said, basically, the more you train your ear, it's like a muscle. So if you train your ear to recognize like 500 hertz, that nerve ending will respond every time it hears that frequency. So, But you have to tell the brain that that's what's happening. Mm. So it is actually purely a case of training all those nerve endings to recognize frequencies. Mm. And it's the just exposure of consciously listening. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, for example, it's doing some of that, but longer than that. But critically listening to things. You and I might hear subtle dips in frequencies as we're mastering something. We'll know damn well what to do to fix it. But when you try and explain to someone, they can't hear the difference. But yet it makes a big difference to something. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's the same with when I first started, you know, when we were at Thames Valley and we were messing with bits of equipment, I distinctly remember patching in compressors and playing with them and all the lights are flashing and I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. I can't hear any difference. Literally, it is a case of you have to train your ear to recognize those things. Yeah. Mm. Then you put that skill there that you've learned in line with having like, I guess, taste in records and adding your creative input to it and the combination of the two things then I think makes it work. Mm. Yeah, I think music is one of those fields where you suddenly realise how basic language is. If you want to describe something in music, you just can't because it's so much more complex and nuanced <laughs> than language is ever able to denote something. So true. I think also, I mean, this is why references are so helpful because I never get involved in a project without having some really good conversations about where we're supposed to be heading with it, where the artist's vision yeah. is and what we're trying to achieve. And part of that conversation is always references. And for that very reason that you're saying is like someone can try and explain something to me for an hour and I might still think I'm on the same page and I'm not. (laughs) If one plays me a record and goes, you know what, this, check out this drum sound or check out the vocal reverb or, you know, all these things. And I'm like, okay, I know exactly what you mean. No problem. We'll do that. Yeah. Mm. It's just great to hear you say that. A standard response that I have in teaching sessions of students who say, yeah, but what is a good mix? I'm not going to tell you that you have to have a certain amount of energy at 60 hertz. You have to tell me what the good mix is, and then we'll measure against that. It's brilliant to hear you reflecting that. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the last time I actually made a record without listening to records. You know, it's just part of the process. I don't think you can listen to records enough during a mix. This is another thing that, as an assistant, I used to watch people mixing and watch people producing records and some of them would never listen to records or they might put a record on in the morning and then they'd just crack on. And then at the end of the day, they'd take the mix into the car and they'd be like, oh, it's not right. As an assistant, it's not my place to say, well, we should listen to a few records. But So I think it's equally important to recognise how not to make records as well. And I think that was even more valuable (laughs) as opposed to people who really knew what they were doing. And they were just sort of signals for me to go, okay, that's... I'll have to remember not to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But you can only achieve that from working with lots of different people, I think. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's the beauty of that, really. I guess it makes it even more important that people like myself come in to universities and talk about that as well. So before Mm. they leave, they know they've got a sense of, like, what they're supposed to be trying to achieve, you know. Cool. So did you set up your own studio? Is that the loft in Liverpool, or are you separate to that? This is the loft now, yeah. I'm in the studio now. Loft was set up about 15 years ago. At that time, I was still traveling a lot. I was working in a lot of different studios and and moving around. I was working Mm. with a lot of producers as a Pro Tools engineer. 
because uh, back in the day, a lot of producers, when Pro Tools first started becoming a thing, a lot of producers didn't really want to know how to use it. You know, they just wanted to think yeah. about the music and sit at the desk and mess with faders. And that's that fine by me. So I just got straight into Pro Tools with that in mind because I realized there was a little gap in the market, really, of like people need a Pro Tools engineer or Pro Tools operator, they used to call it. Or whatever. So, <laughs> But that time I was doing a lot of those sessions where I was moving around with the Pro Tools rig. And actually, this probably sounds mad to a lot of the students and stuff now, is that studios didn't used to have Pro Tools. We used to have to hire it in. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually had a deal with a hire company that I would keep hiring their rig until it was paid off. And then I, I ended up owning it. So it was over a couple of years, I ended up with my own full Pro Tools rig. So I was just out on hire, basically, with that. What was happening was a lot of the time we would be in like big studios for days on end and I'd be sitting at the computer editing and the band would be in the pub or whatever. And it just seemed like <laughs> a bit, bit of a waste of money really to have been in a big studio on a computer. So the loft was really designed as a place that we could just come out of the big studios and do all the editing, overdubs, <laughs> anything that needed doing before mix and then go to a studio to mix. But what happened, we were ending up getting to such a point at the loft where things were just sounding great, and then we started mixing there. And then, obviously, we had to put more equipment in and get it set up for mixing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just evolved, really, over time from being like what was supposed to be a programming suite nice. to a full-on mix room. I noticed you've got the D-Control there. It's a cracking surface. Yeah, it's amazing. I don't want to let it go because it's it's coming yeah. to the end of its life, really. Um I've had lots of conversations with Avid about the S6, and I tried one recently, yeah. tried the S4, and they're great, but they're just really quite different than this. And yeah. this is like an extension of my own arms. I've been using it for that long, <laughs> and I don't want to change it, so I'm just going to keep using it until they make me stop. <laughs> Mike, I think you were born in Liverpool. Was it a sort of coming back to Liverpool, or was it a conscious choice to situate yourself in Liverpool? Um, do you know what? It was at Thames Valley that, that when we finished that course, it was a case of like, right, should I stay in London or go back to Liverpool? And there really was only one reason to come back to Liverpool, and that was Par Street. So basically, I was hammering at the door of Par Street, and I was probably driving them a bit mad, to be <laughs> honest, because I was there every few days. Like, So that went on for about best part of a year, really, of there not being any opportunities there. But I got an, an offer of a job at the, the Motor Museum, you see. So right. I thought, right, I'll go and work there for a year and I'll just keep pestering Park Street. And then opening the Loft Studios, you know, you could have chosen um, to sit yourself in London, but you chose Liverpool again. Was that a conscious decision? It just felt right. Like, this studio was actually owned by a film composer called John Murphy. Uh, he's a friend of mine and from Liverpool again and... I was doing a little bit of work with him and and this is just, partially it's just around the corner. So when I was there, I was popping around and we were sharing equipment and, you know, just there was a bit of a community thing here. The place just felt, it just felt exciting. The, I mean, mm. the space is amazing. It's an old like chemical factory. I guess it's designed like those Manhattan lofts, which is why they called it the loft. John called it the loft actually. So when John moved to LA and he said, oh, I'm selling up, It just felt like the right thing. I just said, John, you've got to let me buy this place because it's, it's just great, you know. And it was just around the corner from Par Street, which I was still working at. Mm. So it just made sense. Brilliant. On this podcast, we've discussed before, you know, the, the issue of the industry being very London-centric. And, of course, we yeah. have these fabulous mm. music cities in, in our country, like Manchester, like Liverpool, you know. 
there's different arguments, isn't there? I think as a mixer, it's less important where you are because, as I said, we are working remotely most of the time. Right. Yeah. Mastering, because I, I run Loft Mastering as well as a separate entity, and that is mostly remote as well. I'd say even more so. So uh, between those two things, I don't need to be in London, but what I do think is important is having um, an awareness from the labels that you exist. So if I don't go to London mm. and do things, people forget. They right. just forget about you. And then, right. you know, they're in the office thinking, I need a mixer today. Who shall I use? Who shall I use? And it's like, it's basically whoever's like fresh in their head. So if I haven't been down for a few weeks, they probably won't think of me straight away. Right. So I do think that it's important to have a presence in London, but I don't think you necessarily have to be there. Now, as a producer or a writer, let's say, um, I think it's, or, or an artist, I think it's more important. Maybe that should be more of a consideration that maybe you should be there. Mm-hmm. Not so much for me, really. What kind of activities take you to London to, to keep you fresh in their minds? Mainly meetings and gigs. So I try, right. I try and get down, like maybe once a month I'll do... Um, just jump on the train and do like a day or two of all and you know it's it's not that difficult because all the late most of the labels are on the same street anyway so i can literally <laughs> fly around and see everyone within a day and, and come back it's only two hours on the train so um mm. i'll do try and do that as often as possible and my management are in london so they're on a daily basis sort of pushing me to a and r and stuff so um, it's a combination, but I do think that I mean, obviously, great management is the major part of it. But I do think there's a, right. something to be said for sharing your face as well. You know, yeah. to just meet people, and you know, you can do you can only do so much on Zoom or on a on a phone yeah. call. I think. Yeah. So I try I try my best to do that. Having said that, I haven't been down since January. <laughs> so, but that's well, this is a particularly strange year, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm not quite sure where I would because no, no, the office, the Universal office is closed and. I think most of the others are closed, so I, I mm. wouldn't be able to meet everyone in the same way in a day. Of you know, I'd be running around London like a lunatic to people's houses, so it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But fingers crossed, you know, that will come back. I, I mean, someone said to me the other day that Universal aren't planning on opening again until next year. Really? Wow. So I don't know how accurate that is, but but um, so we might be, I might not be going down for a little while, actually, but we'll see. Mm. And do you do you feel that some of your clients also buy into what could be seen as the Liverpool brand? You know, these cities are now branding themselves as music cities, and mm. and they're coming out stronger and stronger. So that London is not the only alternative. Does it help you being situated in Liverpool? Do you know what? It's weird. I don't work on a lot of Liverpool projects. Like, I mean, I have done in right. the past. Obviously, all the obvious Liverpool bands I've probably worked with at some point. This is one of the things that I feel like I need to do more about. There's lots of really great new projects coming through Liverpool and a lot of the time they're not on my radar because I'm working with lots of other projects out of the UK and, and down in London. Right. And so things pass me by sometimes. I have to say to say mm. to my mates, I'll keep an eye out around town for me about new things. So there is lots of great projects coming through Liverpool at the moment, but a lot of it I'm just struggling to keep track <laughs> of. <laughs> Over the years I've been involved in lots of Liverpool projects, but I've only done a couple in the last year or so really. So what kind of connection do you have to education? I'm trying to think back to how I did get involved. Um, I suspect what happened was some, a few people asked me to come and do guest lectures, and I actually really enjoyed it. Right. It made me realise the importance of doing it as well. Mm. Um, so I just did more and more of it, really. Yeah. 
I can't remember the first one I did. I was probably terrified doing it as well, I think. But I was trying to like push myself out of my comfort zone because I think it makes you feel a bit more alive. So mm. putting me in front of a, a bunch of students for the first time was probably terrifying, <laughs> but it, you know, it was enjoyable still in a, in a perverted way. <laughs> I think I, just doing those first few, I just thought, you know what, this is something that I really need to incorporate into my, my work oh. life. And actually also as well... I, it has created work for me because a lot of these students go on to work for labels and start labels and become artists in their own right. So I do get a lot of students mm. getting in touch and going, oh, you did a great lecture at York or whatever, and I need a mix, or can you help out? So it does actually create work for me as well. It's, it's like a good PR thing. Mm. We should probably disclose as well that you had the terrible misfortune of having to study with our own <laughs> Russ with Sawyer. Uh, and that obviously uh, is a terrible cross to bear. Um, <laughs> that whole networking thing. And has that been part of it? Do you know what? That, that word networking, I'm not so much a fan of, but okay. I do realise the importance of creating connections and building what I like to think of as friendships, really. Mm. I have mentioned this to students quite a lot of the time. Is like, don't think of it so much as networking. Think of it as building relationships. Because really, I think, firstly, yeah. particularly like A&R and labels in general, they, if you approach them with that networking head-on, they know that you're not talking to them because you mm. want to talk to them and you want, you want work from them. And I think what I try and do is I try and hunt down the people I actually like build relationships with them and more often than not you end up working with them a lot and it's the people that I, I don't really bond with I don't bother chasing you know and I think that just feels like a much more genuine way of, of building your career you know just see who you get on with and, and try and work with them you know absolutely yeah and I think it, it fits also to um, you know I guess what we're trying to do in the universities you know in some ways there has been a lot of talk about employability skills but it's a wrong conception employability skills is nothing else than a sort of slow induction process into a professional community of practice and that's yeah. the industry in our context so i guess getting the industry also back into the university as well as our students onto placements that creates mm. that interaction between industry and, and university and we need more of that actually. yeah yeah i think so as well and it's great that, that you guys are aware of that because it is a fundamental part of because, like I was saying about the route that I came into the industry not being around anymore, it is even more crucial for students to be yeah. connected with industry in some way before they leave. Because once they leave university, the bubble, yeah. they're out of the bubble, they're in the real world, yeah. and they need to understand how it works. And some of them mm -hmm. will get the shock of their life when they leave if they haven't had an mm -hmm. insight into it. When we were at Thames Valley, we were very much like the guinea pigs of that whole sort of production course or whatever you know we still learn a lot i was already dipping my toe in in the industry in some ways like i was i've been in bands since i was 14 just gigging all the time and uh been in a couple of studios before i did the course and all that but and to be honest with you when you're saying i studied with russ i didn't really study that much i know i think russ <laughs> dragged me along it was only the last year where I thought, oh, I'd better get my dish together. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's kind of how I recollect it, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Russ. <laughs> it was only really when I, when I came back to Liverpool and started working in the commercial studios that I, I really started to get it, how people make records and stuff, and we, we didn't really get that insight. 
No, I mean, it was so early days, wasn't it? It wasn't the course that it is now there, that's for sure. Yeah, I just remembered actually, my first experience of working with a proper producer was actually at Thames Valley, and this happened totally by accident, right? This is a story that a lot of students should take on board and use. Hmm. So we had to bring a band in as part of our project. I don't know if you remember this, Russ, or not. I'm not sure if I told you this. (laughs) I brought this band in from Birmingham. I haven't got a clue how I found them, but they were a great little funk band anyway. And they just happened to be real big fans of Paul Weller. Um, So I just, on a total whim, I just found out, who's Paul Weller's producer? It's this guy, Brendan Lynch. So I was like, okay, Brendan Lynch. Got in touch with him. I actually called him. I don't know where I got his number from. Called him. I said, listen, I'm I'm just a student. I'm working with this band. Can you come in and help me? Um, (laughs) Tell me if you think it's any good. Expecting him to just tell me. Wow. And he's like, yeah, yeah, what, what, what day? And he came down, him, Brendan and uh, Max Hayes, his engineer, just rocked up at Thames Valley and helped me finish this this track off. And I ended up actually working with him on a couple of records, like further down the line, which was which was really nice. But So it just shows you, it's like when whenever you think, especially now, people are so contactable. It's like, don't be afraid to just get in touch with people and just be cheeky and, you know, see what comes of it. Oh, yeah even more so than now, and particularly because we haven't got, well, a lot of students haven't got access to working with these guys, you know. Mm. Yeah. Just be cheeky. And that's what I was like with Par Street. When I started at Par Street, I mean, my CV was, like, exceptional, like, in terms of my skill set, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I just made it all up. <laughs> <laughs> the problem <laughs> arrived when they actually invited me in because one of the engineers was sick. And I told them how great I was on an SSL and everything. I'd never seen an SSL before. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes you, what did they say? Um, Fake it till you make it. I guess there's some. (laughs) Tell you what, just, just, just be glad it wasn't a Neve because they're a little bit more complicated (laughs) than the SSLs. (laughs) You know what? I mean, I tell you what, within a day or two, I knew the SSL because it was thrown in the deep end. I guess there's a level of blag that you can get away with. I mean, if you, if you can't deliver mm. when you walk in the door, then that's a problem. But I do like students that have got yeah. a confidence and an attitude of like, you know what? I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to work it out and I'll do it fast. I really like that attitude yeah. in, in, in people and yeah. in, 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 as an assistant coming in because we can teach people the, the technical stuff. It's the people skills, I think, and the attitude towards it that you can't really teach. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. they're the people that I want to, I want to hire really. You know what we do at York, Mike, in the sense of we've put all of that stuff quite at the forefront of our teaching. But would you say that in your experience going around other places, uh, do you think that there's a lack of priority for that kind of interpersonal skills, professional relationships in in the education that's delivered when you experience it? Um, I think all the universities are aware of the value of, like, industry, bringing in industry. I do think, particularly with a lot of the independent universities where their their budgets are very well thought out, let's say, um, they probably don't bring in as many industry as they like to because it's purely based on, on budget, which is understandable. I think that what I noticed at a couple of the places is they've got producers and mixers and people who are doing sort of part-time there. So they're bringing in, it's like a compromise really. So they're people with great industry skills, but also have got enough time to come in and actually make a bit more of a commitment, like do a module or here or whatever. 
Uh, and I think that's great because that sort of ticks both boxes then. It's like affordable and it's bringing in people who really know what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, I think they probably would have more guest lectures and more uh, industry coming through. Yes. I, I do sometimes wonder if in the UK, you know, because we've moved so much to a three-year degree model or, you know, in Scotland, we've got a four-year degree undergraduate degree model. And three years is not very much time. So my university degree was back in Germany where there was a you know longer time span and it was more a way of life rather than a rite of passage as it is here in, in Britain. And it does mean that you can incorporate. So I remember that when I went to university, I already was working in the music industry besides doing my studies. Yeah, Whereas, of course, yeah. here it's so high risk also to, to push everything into the three years. You yeah. actually don't have much time to develop. Maybe it is actually where we have to release this three-year commitment and rather say, you know, actually lifelong learning. You know, we want to also attract much more mature learners. We want to be able to allow yeah. people to go in and move into industry and out into academia much more easily in order for them to experience the industry, then come back and understand what the underpinning practice and theory actually means to them and then go back into the industry and at the moment it's just you know that's three years and then you are out oh in the big wide world yeah i mean there's a couple of universities doing two years as well yeah accelerated degrees they're just cramming it cramming it into two years yeah also i think as well that once they leave if you do land a job as an assistant somewhere you're probably not gonna have time to do anything else for any time soon it'll be intense so the mm. thought of going then back to or jumping in between the two probably isn't that viable. I think I think mm. once you're in a in a role as an assistant, you're going to be flat out. I think where that differs, Mike, is where you know Abbey Road still take on a particular university's sandwich year degree students, um, yeah. and that's a lineage that lineage that remains to this day. Mm. That's the only example where there is one, I think, and and I think that's only because they are two very long-standing institutions that could continue. You know yourself. You are a long-standing institution in Liverpool, but it, you're not seen as an entity in the same way Abbey Road might be. But I do, I think that's very valuable because you learn the trade, but it's dependent on the trade coming through the studio enough to warrant you being able to hire. And how many Abbey Roads have we got left? Not many. So, um, well, yeah. not not with not yeah. with Angel going, and um, you know it's looking rocky mm. for everyone. Really, you know that's yeah. why the Abbey Road diversified so much. Yeah. Mm. The thing is, we're always going to need great rooms to record drums and orchestras and all that sort of stuff. There's going to be a requirement for that. And I think that's why the Abbey Roads and the heirs of this world have, have stayed open, because it's got to a point where there's enough work for those several to keep busy. And I don't think that's going to change long term. There'll always be that demand, but it's just us getting over this whole COVID thing so that people can actually record an orchestra again. I don't know how they're going to deal with that, but... Well, Abbey Road are reducing the size of orchestras and they've got a whole COVID plan out where they're separating the seats between musicians of the orchestra. I'd be interested to hear how it sounds because it's going to sound different. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But where there's a will, there's a way, and there'll always be a way to do this. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I guess creators, we, you know, in the creative sector, we find ways around it and making it differently special. Yeah, I've got... A couple of projects that I need strings on before I can mix, so I'm waiting on a solution for this. Mm. And I guess even if they have to split it up and do it in sections, 
then that's just how it's going to have to be. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, a great song and a great performance is always going to shine through, whether it's sampled strings, real strings, whatever. There'll always be a way to make great records, whatever. I'll tell you something that's really interesting. I've been getting a lot of clients, and I don't know why this is, but a lot of clients who have literally said, I'm really sorry about the vocal take. It was done on an iPhone. And I'm not joking. From seri- I'm serious composer, producer types, and I've got three independent ones of that coming in. Doesn't right. that sound half bad? They've made a good job of it. But you think, <laughs> what? how lockdown's making them capture audio is, is strange. Yeah. They seem to think it's okay. <laughs> For a demo, presumably. No, this is going out. <laughs> very soon whoa yeah. i'm not good, but i mean it's one of those band past radio style voices but it works uh, you know? okay yeah, yeah. yeah what i find also interesting i've been in several sessions where they talk about social distance priors and also online type of recording production projects and it tends to be the case that the audience still love it and it's rather the experience of the performers mm-hmm. that's that is completely different and is mm. diminished to a certain extent you know that we can't feel each other in proximity that we can't play together that that it's a, suddenly it's a video editing and a technical project rather than a music performance project as such but when you then ask the audiences they just love it yeah yeah you know this is how yeah. people adapt isn't it it's, it's amazing how how quick mm. people adapt to find ways to create to be fair i'd much rather have a vocal from an iphone mic that's got a special performance than something that's average on, <laughs> on a, a Neumann 67. You know, it's it's all about that for me. It's all about, like, does it move me musically? And then we find out a way to make it sonically great. Yeah. It's a secondary thing. But if the performance isn't there and the song isn't there, it's always going to be a struggle to make it sound special, you know. Mm. We're talking about industry and education and education industry. Have you discovered any reluctance to education from the industry um no i i haven't i haven't experienced anything like that that's interesting everything's positive really to be fair as well i wouldn't really care what anyone thought or said to me about it it just feels like the right thing to do for me cool and you know i wish i could do more of it i can't i mean i can only really do about one a month really uh, realistically um but I'm still totally up for doing it and, and will be for for the foreseeable, really. Just because I want to share, like as I said, I've been so lucky to experience all this stuff. And it's like, if I don't share it with someone, it's just lost then, isn't it? And and it's like a lot of those those skills that I've watched and learned from are invaluable to making great records. So it's almost like it's a dying art if, if we don't yeah. share it. Is it the kind of thing you might consider doing more of? I'd love to have had time, but at the moment I haven't. Yeah. Maybe at some point in time, yeah but right now it's literally like i as i said i've only had i've had four days off this year so mm. pretty shattered to be honest like and that's actually without we haven't done any guest lectures really in fact this is the first thing i've done remotely educational thank you <laughs> well yeah thank you for joining us it's been brilliant so yeah I'm, I'm totally up for doing it and i haven't had any negativity from any angle really about getting involved with it cool cool I suppose a final question, maybe. Um, what do you think the future of the industry is and what might education need to supply it? Um, I think to continue to involve industry, expose the students yeah. to industry is the key thing, really, mm. in as many ways as possible and, and just keep that going, really. Because I said, I mean, coming from my experience as a student, it's like I didn't, I learned very little, really, on the course. And that was my fault, really, in the course. But mm. it's only really when I started to sit in on 
people making records that I started to learn about how it goes on. Mm. And I was actually as well, I signed a record deal as well because I was still in a band when I left London and I signed to Mercury and that gave me a little opportunity to work with some really big producers for a few years as well. So that as well was a different angle, almost oh. like seeing it from an artist's point of view rather than as an assistant, which is a slightly different angle. And again, a lot of that was learning how not to make records. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I think unless you're in it actually making a record, whether that's as an artist or an assistant or whatever, I do find it hard to grasp. I know some students will be finding it difficult to just grasp exactly what we do and how we do it. So the more that you can involve industry, mm. I think the better. Yeah. And you said something very lovely just a few minutes ago where you said it's not just about networking skills, it's about building those partnerships. So university yeah, yeah, industry partnerships yeah. where mm. curriculum becomes something permeable between the industry and the academic context. Yeah, totally. And that's, as I said, I hate that word networking because it just feels a bit <laughs> like plastic, you know, but, yeah, yeah. but I do think there's, there's real value in just trying to build relationships and in that mm. way. Uh, and people will, it's almost like you don't really need to go shouting about yourself to people. I think what you need to do is do great work and people will mm. find out. People will come and hunt you down. And that's exactly how labels like things to be. Like, I never chase A&R about projects, very rarely. Um, and I always encourage artists not to do it as well. Because all I say to people is like, if you do something great and just keep doing it, they will find out and they will come and find you. And that to them is a much more organic approach because they feel like they're discovering something. So there's a little bit of psychology involved in that, but I think it's mainly just natural human instincts. You know, if something's great, people find out about it rather than going out your way to, to push and network and get in people's faces, which is important, but in, just do it in a natural way. I guess in the industry, they call it chatter. You know, like in a label environment in the office, people right. talk about things. Oh, have you have you had that mate? Such and such is done. Wicked, right. you know, and or have you had that artist? And and then they go and tell their mates. And the industry's so small, like all the A and R, they all go to lunch together. Everyone knows each other. So as soon as someone starts talking about something, everyone knows about it. <laughs> and it works the other way as well. So this is why I say to people, you're only as good as your last job. Because If you do one bad job, you guarantee that everyone finds out about it and the phone stops yeah. ringing, so you just can't let that happen. It's like everything's just got to be quality, over, and it never stops. Like, you know, even now, I'm constantly having to prove myself to people all the time, to A&R. And this is often because you get a lot of an influx of new A&R coming through, a lot of, a lot of younger kids who, who I need to learn from. You know, I, mm. you know, I'm in my 40s now, and I need to stay current. I need to know what kids are listening to and what they vibing off and it's unless i tap into that i'm just gonna lose track of what's going on so it's a two-way street you know what i mean it's like i'm trying to learn from these younger a&r coming through and then they're slowly discovering that i'm still on it even though i'm a bit older than them and you know but it's all fairly organic really i think mm, nice mm. cool Well, that's awesome thank you so much it's just nice to to actually have a chat with a few people after like three months of lockdown <laughs> it really is thank you for listening to episode four of sound learnings our not at all festive edition sound learnings is produced by tim Kampfer, russ epwasoya and corolla bohm 
Editing, mixing and music composition is by me, Tim Kampfer. Russ Hepworth-Sawyer does the mastering and Corolla Boehm does the show notes and social media. Sound Learnings is hosted by Acast. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review if your podcast app allows it. Otherwise, please give us a shout on your favourite social media platform. You've listened this far, so come on, say hello online. It really does help other people connect as well. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.